This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley. And I'm Lacey, and this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Wisconsin discussing the biggest single incident of mass murder in Wisconsin history. Then we'll talk about the highly debated murder of a young photographer. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Badger State. Most people, when they hear Wisconsin, the first thing that comes to mind is the Green Bay Packers, dairy farms, and cheese. But if you're a crimey like me and Lacey, you think Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Gein, or Stephen Avery. While those three cases are famously strange and shocking, I've got one quite bizarre to tell you that is deserving of its own Netflix miniseries. This is the story of Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin Estate and the horrors that took place there. So my story is about the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. I know who that is. How do is that you? How do you know? Or just like, you know, art history. Yeah. So this is about him. Did I he didn't, get murdered? I did not know about this. Okay. So he is known as one of the most prominent architects from the 20th century. He uh, built, or not built, but like designed mm-hmm. prairie architecture, which is bold plain lines, large living areas, and perimeter heating surrounding indoor spaces that distribute warm air. Did you know all that? Not that last part. I didn't think so. So, my story is not about him being murdered. Okay. But the murder of his mistress and six others Mm. at their home that he called Italiesin, which is Welch. It means some other shit. I didn't look it up. Sorry. I haven't heard it. Write me in. So, in 1903, at the age of 36, he was an established architect and married with six children. His wife's name was Catherine. Everybody called her Kitty, which, fun fact, is my mother's name. Kitty, not Catherine. Okay. Anyways. So his wife, Catherine, belongs to the women's club, and she meets a woman named Mama. It was like Martha, blah, blah, 12 other names, but everybody called her Mama. So she introduces Mama and her husband to Frank. So now the two couples are friends. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mama's husband hires Frank to build and design a home for them. So in the process of all of this being done, Frank and Mama start, an, start a little affair going on. Sorry, and, did you say which town this is? So this is like, this is in Illinois. So it's like Chicago area. Gotcha. It's like a suburb of okay. Chicago. So, when the house is done, they stay in touch and keep their secret affair going. But everybody around Chicago knew this was going on. Mm. So, in the summer of 1909, Mama leaves her husband and kids and moves to New York. And a couple weeks later, Frank follows, abandoning his wife and six kids. Wow. Pieces of shit. Anyways, so they stayed two nights in New York at the plaza and then they left for a year in Europe. Wow. 
I mean, if she was going to pick somebody to cheat with. I didn't, I mean, I knew that he was a famous, he's, renowned architect, but I didn't know he was, he was a baller. cheater. He was a cheating, balling oh. mofo. So they go to Europe for a year, and he's studying, like, writing and drafting. And when they come back, he is building the talisman. Like it was a Welsh, don't call me out on my my non-Welsh speaking words. So they settle in there. The residents did not like this because they knew he was a big fat cheater. <laughs> and the press called the place the Love Cottage. So it was no secret that she's a hoe and he's a cheater. So bad publicity from his affair causes a decline in people that are like commissioning him to mm. do stuff. Because wow. people are like, because you know all these other wives are like, don't hire him. He's That's trash. A good point. Or husbands were like, I can't hire him. What if he sleeps with my wife? So Mama got divorced. Her husband was like, I'm signing divorce papers. I'm done with you. But Kitty did not divorce Frank. His wife refused to sign divorce papers. Mm. So this made the relationship even more difficult. So on Saturday, August the 15th, 1914, Frank goes to Chicago for business and all hell breaks loose. Mamas' children, 12-year-old John and 8-year-old Martha, were visiting like they did. They'd come visit her. So she did not have custody. Ooh, okay. No. So the three of them were eating lunch on the porch. And in the dining room were draftsmen and laborers who worked for Frank. And they were eating their, you know, they were eating lunch in there. So 30-year-old Julian Carlton was a handyman and butler. And he was serving them, serving the family and the workers. He'd only been there like a few months and he came here from Barbados. And his wife was their cook. So, after she served them soup, he tells his wife, leave. Like, get out of here. No soup for you. Yeah, basically. So, she leaves. He goes out, gets gasoline and a hatchet, and comes back to the house. So, Mama and her son and daughter were sitting on the porch eating their lunch. And he attacks them with a hatchet. (gasps) Her daughter, too. Well, the little girl takes off running. So he kills Mama and, and John. Mm-hmm. So the little girl, Martha, is running. And he catches up to her in the courtyard and hatchets her to death. No. I know. I know we hate kid murder, but mm. but that's not enough. Then he douses them all three with gasoline and sets them on fire. Mm. Then he goes back to the house, shuts bolts and locks all the windows and doors and starts pouring gasoline under all the doors. Mm. 19-year-old draftman Herbert Fritz was eating when he saw liquid begin to pouring, you know, like start pouring in under the door from the dining room. And he said it sounded like a swish of water and then it burst into flames. So he, like the whole house is on fire. All the exits are locked. The, everything's shut and, like, barricaded. So there was a window by where he was sitting. And this man is on fire. Like, his hair is on fire. His body's on fire. He breaks the window, jumps out, and takes off running. 
So as he's running, he like looks back and Carlton is standing there with a hatchet and anybody that tries to come out the window, he just attacks them with the hatchet. So 35-year-old carpenter Billy Weston managed to escape, but his 13-year-old son, who had happened to join him that day for work, was killed by Carlton. So these two men that survived ran to a house that was like a half a mile away to get them to call somebody to come help. And then all the, you know, neighbors come running because the house is in, anyways. So they are putting the, putting the fire, trying to put the fire out. And they're like, where did he go? Where did he go? Right. So in the meantime, they did find the landscaper in the grass he had gotten out, but Carlton had chased him down and uh, chopped him to pieces. Yeah. So the people that didn't die in the, in fire, the fire died by him. When they got uh, out, he, yeah. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. Seven out of nine people died. Wow. Like I said, the neighbors tried to put the fire out, but the house burnt to the ground. Hours later, they found Carlton. In the basement, he had swallowed a lethal dose of marotic acid. Oh. He was still alive, but he was unconscious. Okay. And, like, they literally wanted to lynch him right there. But the sheriff was like, no, we're taking him to prison or to jail. So he goes to jail, but he died of starvation seven weeks later because he swallowed that acid and it had burnt his throat <sighs> so bad that he couldn't eat or drink anything. Wow. Yeah. So he uh, did make two court appearances in the meantime, but he never stood trial and he never explained why really? he attacked them or did anything. So there's no explanation that, for why he did that. When I don't get explanations, that Mm-mm. bugs me so much. So Wright wasn't told about the death of his mistress or whatever and everyone at his home until reporters asked him about it on his way to catch the train to come back to Chicago, to come back to Wisconsin from Chicago. Like he didn't even know anything was going on. And reporters ran up to him and was like, Hey, so everybody's dead at your house. And he's like, what? So he actually told her ex-husband what had happened in the kids. And he rode the train back to mm. Wisconsin with him. And, uh, actually took the remains of the kids back to Chicago and and Frank buried her nearby where the house was Mm -hmm. in an unmarked grave and had no service for her because he said it was too painful for him Hmm. so after all this happens then Kitty his wife was like okay I'll give you a divorce oh bitch now you want to give me a divorce my wife's dead or my mistress is dead now anyways so he did rebuild the house. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm eager to see what it looks like. He did rebuild the house and he actually lived there. He was 47 when this happened and he lived there until he died at age 92. Wow. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he lived that long either. Yeah, he died in 1959. I'm so surprised, like, I went to architecture school. I know. I I'm like, I'm surprised that you knew who this was. I had no idea who this was. So, other people have said that Carlton was getting more and more paranoid up leading up to this. The guy that killed everybody. Mm-hmm. Other people that, like, 
knew the family or had been around said that he was getting more and more paranoid and they would sometimes see him sitting in his window late at night holding a butcher knife. And uh, he was told that he was going to be fired and his last day was August the 15th, which is the day that he oh did all this. So that has to be. So like something that's maybe set yeah. him off. Okay. Yeah. The rescuers took the... You know, they carried the dead or the dying people out of the house Mm. up to a cottage called Tan E. Dairy, D-E-R-I. It's also Welsh. Today, witnesses say that they have seen lights flicker on and off, windows open and close, doors slam by themselves, phantom smells of smoke and gas, and voices Mm. of children screaming. And that an apparition of a restless woman in a white gown is seen walking around there. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of um, the more recent season of uh, Haunting of Bly Manor. Is that what it's called? Oh, Bly yes. Manor? So, woman in white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Restless woman in white. Mm-hmm. That freaks me out. So, that's my story. Wow. I thought Wisconsin was going to be hard, but there's a lot of. I didn't, stuff I, there. I didn't know about a lot of weird stuff. I didn't know about this. I didn't know. I didn't either. And then you all, you're always the one who does like the old, I love old haunted history cases. cases. Actually, a friend of mine suggested a website that this was on. And so I can't remember it. I'll tell you. Is that. it called like oldhistorycrimeorsomething.com? Something, something, something that like name. that. Yeah, something like that. Because I've found that as a source a couple of times for... So thank you for that. I won't shout out your name because I don't know if you want me to say it. So <laughs> thank you for that. You might want to be private. Mm. Some people do. Wow. That's a good one. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. That's terrifying to be locked in a house and hear gas pour underneath oh, it. No. And then you think, oh, oh I'll just break a window and jump out. But then they're just like standing uh, like Spider-Man up against the thing with a hat. No. Mm-mm. I don't like house fires. Something about drownings and house fires I'm claustrophobic, but it's just like being stuck or trapped and not escaping. I don't, I don't like that. Well, that's a that was definitely a lot of that was opposite to my case, which is good. I almost wish you went last. Not that it's uplifting, but it's. Mm-mm. I can't wait to look up pictures. I have to send or you know post on Instagram some of the houses. Or the house. Okay, so before I start my case, I want to give a shout out to our newest patron. We love a patron. Yes, Katie B. Katie. I never want to put, say last names. No, even though we don't. know what they are. Because, yeah. But anyway, Katie, thanks so much for your support. So she's actually from Wisconsin. Funny timing. So I asked her a little advice on picking a case. So she suggested the Teresa Hallback case, which will mm-hmm. ring a bell with a lot of our listeners. There was a documentary on Netflix created a few years back called Making a Murderer, which focused mostly on the defense's side of things. I was originally thinking this was way too covered, and honestly, I wanted to steer completely clear of this. But Katie told me that this happened really close to where she lives. and Oh, really? Yeah, like... 30 to 40 minutes away, she feels terrible for Teresa's family because they wanted Teresa to be the focus of the documentary. And instead, it gives, it focuses mostly on Stephen Avery and that side of things. 
I will eventually. So I will give a brief summary a little later on for those who haven't seen the documentary. I can't discuss the case without getting into that, of course. But I did a quick poll on our Instagram just today because I was curious. And 29% of the people on our Instagram have not seen it. So today I'm going to cover the murder of Teresa Hallback and discuss some things that the documentary left out. I'm going to try not to be overly biased, but I'm human. Just going to say, I'm going to try. I'll just say to our listeners that are more curious about this case, check out the court transcripts, you know, for a more well-rounded view on the story. The documentary is a slanted look at the case. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I'm just saying there's more to the story that we aren't shown or told. Always do your digging on something and, you know, never take a documentary just 100% at face value. Right. This goes for all cases, not just this one, just in general. So Teresa Marie Hallback was born on March 22, 1980 in Kakana, Wisconsin, and she grew up on a dairy farm near Green Bay. She had four siblings, two brothers, Michael and Timothy, and two sisters, Katie and Kelly. When she graduated summa cum laude from the University of Wisconsin, she took a job as a photographer in Green Bay, although she moved back down to live next to her parents' farm. She actually moved next door to them in 2004. So during college, she traveled to Mexico, Spain. She studied abroad in Australia, where she even learned how to scuba dive. Fun. That is fun, but Australia, that's the box jellyfish, Mm-mm, sharks. Have, so she loved travel and adventure, but was a family girl and wanted to be close to them at the end of the day. An ex-boyfriend named Ryan said her favorite song to sing was Picture by Sheryl Crow and Kid Rock. Gross. I kind of, I don't like Kid Rock, but I kind of like that song. Of course you do. <laughs> her friends described her as energetic and spontaneous, and it took a lot to scare her. She was outgoing, brave, and a friend to everyone, and she also loved karaoke. Makes me wonder if she sang that. Of course she did. Karaoke. And I was just going to say, you probably sing that, don't you? <laughs> I do in my shower. I don't have someone to sing it with. You just sing both parts. Don't give me ideas. Mm-hmm. So in October of 2005, when she was 25 years old and working as a freelance photographer, One of her jobs was to take photos of vehicles for sale that were going to be either printed in Auto Trader magazine or put online as well. So on October 31st of 2005, she had an appointment to take photos at a minivan at Avery's Auto Salvage in Manitowoc County. She was going to meet Stephen Avery there to photograph his sister's minivan. Not a minivan. So she did this begrudgingly because she was no fan of Stephen Avery's. And in fact, she told her boss she did not want to go. Why? Would, why? Because of encounters she had had with him in the past. In the past. Yeah. So she had taken, so they had an auto salvage. They had a bunch of cars. She had taken photos of vehicles for him before. So she went to his door and he answered it and he was only wearing a towel. Ew. He knew she was coming. Yeah. And that really creeped her out. And she told her boss she'd be fine dealing with the sister, the the father, or the brother, and other family members, but she didn't really want to deal with him, and she didn't know she would be dealing with him that day. So when he called her boss, he gave her sister's initial and last name, B 
Yonda, her name is Barb. And as though that's who Teresa was going to be meeting. So that day, Teresa called Barb Yonda and left a voicemail saying she would be there at about 2 or 2.30 that day. Well, when he called, he specifically said he would like the young lady photographer who was there last time. So Stephen Avery called Teresa's cell phone two times that day using star 67 to conceal his number. I used that a lot back in the day. (laughs) And then star 69 was to see who called you, I think. Right? I can't remember. So I'm not sure why he did that if they had an appointment that day, but he did call her again at 4.35 p.m. not hiding his number. But at this point, her phone was likely turned off and presumably destroyed. So she had told friends that later that evening she had plans to join them for a Halloween celebration at a local bar, and she planned on dressing up as a cowgirl. Of course she did. She's singing Kid Rock. Kid Rock, cowgirl, that sounds like a good karaoke night. But unfortunately, she never showed up that night. She was missing, and the last known place she was headed to was the Avery's Auto Salvage. So because of this, the police obtained a search warrant, and the property was searched, and her 1999 Toyota RAV4 was found by a volunteer searcher named Pamela Strum. After searching the salvage yard for less than 40 minutes on the morning of November 5th, So there were multiple search groups that day, and to give everyone an idea, the property was approximately 40 acres, so pretty big, Mm -hmm. and multiple structures and roughly 4,000 vehicles, which is a lot. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I'll post a photo of the vehicle, but it was covered with boards, wood, and trees. It wasn't completely hidden. The theory is that someone wanted to make it look like it was just another junkyard car that wasn't working or something like that. So based on the November 5th warrant, officers searched Stephen Avery's trailer eight times in his garage four times. This is stressing me out because I watched the documentary. (sighs) Yeah. So upon the eighth time, the key to Teresa's RAV4 was found. So this is later introduced as evidence against Stephen Avery, but the defense suggests that it was planted there. They argue that it should have been found earlier. So I'm going to give a quick opinion. I do see both sides here. I think it's weird it wasn't found sooner. Um, yeah. But I will just plan devil's advocate here. It was a key, so people know it was one key on a lanyard, and technically they didn't know what they were searching. They were just searching for anything, if that makes sense. Like they, they're So it could have been, yeah. So it could have been his key. Well, right. Like, they're in there. They don't know what they're searching for. They're just searching, looking for possible evidence. And it's possible maybe the key shifted around while people are searching. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Maybe it slid to the back of something. Maybe when people were shuffling around, it fell out. It is odd. I'm just going to say it is odd that it wasn't found sooner. But after Teresa's car was recovered, investigators matched bloodstains in her car to Stephen Avery's DNA. There are also cadaver dogs on the property, and their trail started at Stephen's trailer and then led them to a burn pit on the property and then went to the quarry, which neighbored the property. So the burn pit contains Teresa's charred remains, and her phone, camera, and PDA were found in a burn barrel on the property. Mm -hmm. 
So the Wisconsin State Crime Lab found flesh and blood at the quarry near State mm-hmm. 147 and the east side of Avery Road, about a quarter mile from the Avery Salvage Secured Crime Scene. So, of course, at this point, it does not look good for Stephen Avery, so they take him in for questioning. In one of his earliest interviews, Stephen said that Teresa went into his trailer where he paid her for the photos, and then she left. Well, then they found her car, and he says that he met her at her car, and that's where he paid her. Now, let me tell you a little history about Stephen Avery. So, in 1985, Stephen was accused of raping a woman named Penny Bernstein, and he was convicted and sentenced to prison. So, after he served 18 years in prison, he was exonerated by DNA testing and released in 2003. Yeah. So, after he was released, he filed a $36 million lawsuit against Manitowoc County, its former sheriff, and its former district attorney for wrongful conviction and imprisonment. Can't even imagine. Mm-mm. Like, there's no price Mm-mm. for that. Absolutely not. Penny has written an essay since then, and it's published on the marshallproject.org, and she wrote this. At the time, I didn't know anything about how memory works and about what good procedures are, about showing lineups to victims. The perpetrator was not in the photo lineup I was shown. I never had an opportunity to identify my actual assailant. It was a simultaneous lineup where witnesses are shown all photos at once, and there were nine photos. I carefully looked at each one and picked Stephen Avery's. The sheriff later put together a live lineup. They were eight men, and I picked Stephen Avery again. He was the only person in both so it's logical that I would pick him. She said she wasn't convinced he was the rapist, but that the police were. This is horrible for it's Stephen. It's so terrible. It's horrible for Penny. It's horrible for everyone. And it makes sense. It's like she's shown these photos. She sees a guy, like, oh, maybe that's him. And then when she sees the, sees the lineup, it's almost like it tricks her memory into thinking, I've seen that person earlier. So right. it's just, it's not fair. It's not a, yeah, it's, I don't I don't know if they're still doing the same technique or not, but I hope not. So Penny apologized to Stephen Avery and his parents. She talks about how troubled she felt about everything. The day he was released from prison, Stephen Avery said that he did not blame the victim to what happened to him because what happened to her was horrible and that it was the cops that set him up. So Gregory Allen was the man responsible for the rape, not Stephen Avery. That we now know is clear. However, he does have a troubling past that is glossed over a little bit in the documentary. Animal harm is my number one trigger. So I'm going to go over this quickly, but if you do not want to hear this part, skip ahead a couple of minutes. Minutes? A couple. One minute. Okay, so this the documentary does touch briefly on this. I think in the first episode, I'm glad Jax is out of the room. Because he would need his kitty muffs. <laughs> Charlie, where's Charlie? <laughs> Charlie, don't listen to this. Okay. When, in 1982, when Stephen was younger, around 19 years old, he and his friends doused Stephen's cat in gasoline and oil and then threw it into a bonfire to watch it die. Mm-mm. 
The friend said it was Steven's suggestion. And I'm going to be honest here. The first time I ever tried to watch this documentary, I was done. Mm -hmm. Like they mentioned that. And I'm like, I don't even care because I was just so mad. It's just so cruel. I know he's younger at the time. He's 19. But I still can't fathom someone doing that to an animal. And violence is also, violence against animals is a strong indicator of future violence toward people. But this alone does not mean he killed Teresa. But he was found guilty of animal cruelty and had some jail time for this. Okay, I'm done with the animal stuff. Ugh, it was making my skin crawl. Mm-mm. Okay, so in January of 1985, Stephen ran his cousin's car off the side of the road. So she was his cousin, but also happened to be the sheriff's deputy's wife. So after she pulled over, he pointed a rifle at her and tried to force her into his vehicle. But he let her go when she told him her infant daughter was with her in in the car. She asked if he would allow her to drop off her baby at her parents' house. Then she would come back and do whatever he wanted. He followed her, but then she ran into the house and called police. And at this point, he drove off. So he did this because he was upset that she was spreading rumors about him masturbating on the front yard. Ew. He said this is not true. He said the gun was not loaded. But of course, if someone's pointing a gun in your face, you don't know if it's loaded or not. So he was sentenced to six years for endangering safety while invincing a depraved mind. I haven't heard of that before. And possession of a firearm. Okay, so it's also worth noting that it was actually a neighbor of Stevens that said they witnessed him masturbating, and they're the ones who called the cops to file a report. So he had thought the, you know, his cousin was the one spreading rumors. Well, anyway, while he was wrongfully in prison, his wife Lori divorced him. After this, he wrote her threatening letters and said, If you don't bring up my kids, I will kill you, I promise. Ha ha. He also wrote his young children things like, I hate mom, she will pay, daddy will get mom when daddy gets out, and the letters included drawings of how he would mutilate and kill her. Yeah. So after this, his contact with his children was eliminated. So he also sent Lori a threatening cassette tape, and his friends were sending threatening letters as well. He did eventually move on after the divorce, And after he was released from prison, he moved in with his girlfriend, Jody. So this relationship wasn't all roses either. This is the woman who is in the documentary. But it doesn't mention that in September of 2004, he was arrested for disorderly conduct after a fight with her and was ordered to keep away from her for 72 hours. So in the summer of 2004, a relative of Stevens under the age of 18 claimed he sexually assaulted her. Her mother did not want her name to be out and she didn't want her to be identified publicly. Don't blame her. Mm-mm. But the girl said she was worried about talking to detectives because Stephen told her that he would kill her whole family if he, she told anyone what they did together. This is horrible, but many family members and friends of Stephen said that they knew about this and that he openly discussed it. Mm-mm. No. Jody, Jody never said anything, but people claim she knew about it, but that's never, she never admits that, so I don't know. 
So also one of his childhood friends claimed that he took her virginity by raping her and then threatening her if she screamed or told anyone. While he was in prison, he supposedly told other prisoners that he had plans to rape and torture women when he was released and that he showed them drawings of his torture chamber. So I don't really put a lot of trust in jailhouse snitches. I'm not giving you all of this information as a way of saying he killed Teresa, but a lot of this didn't get mentioned in the documentary, so I wanted to tell you all about it because I didn't know about some of this stuff. It definitely kind of makes it look like, oh, wow, he's, I mean, he's innocent of what he did to with what mm-hmm. someone did to Penny. He's 100% innocent, but that doesn't mean he's innocent of everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm I'm not making a, a statement there. But, gotcha. So it just kind of gives you a glimpse that he did have an unsavory past. So now let's get back to Teresa's murder in 2005. So they found Teresa's charred skeletal remains, her belongings, her RAV4 on the property, the keys in Stephen's trailer, so nothing's looking good at this point. So Stephen Avery was arrested and charged with Teresa's murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, and mutilation of a corpse on November 11, 2005. He claimed he was being framed like before. Manitowoc County claimed to cede control of the murder investigation to neighboring Calumet County Sheriff's Department because of their history. So, however, some of the Manitowoc deputies participated in repeat searches of the trailer, garage, and property. And it was a Manitowoc deputy that found the key to Teresa's vehicle in his bedroom. So this was a huge source of contention in this case. And his attorneys said there was a conflict of interest here, and they believe there was evidence tampering. I'll say this much about the case. Stephen Avery's attorneys are great yes. at their jobs. If I ever need a defense attorney, I'll put out the big bucks to get his defense. So they discovered an evidence box contained a vial of his blood that was collected in 1996 during his appeals efforts from the Bernstein case that was unsealed and a puncture hole was visible from the stopper. So they speculated that the blood found in Teresa's car could have been drawn from the stored vial and placed in the vehicle to incriminate him. (sighs) Stranger things have happened. So FBI technicians tested the blood from Teresa's car for EDTA, a preservative used in blood vials, but not present in the human body, and none was found. So there's something extra in the blood vial that wasn't found in the car. So I thought this was super suspicious. I'm not in the medical field, but I did a little research on blood vials. Don't ask me what I did. But apparently, it's typical for blood vials to have a small hole in the top. But they're, va- the- but they're vacuum-sealed. Right. So it's like a, it's a vacuum-sealed thing, but it has a small hole in the very top because that's how the blood gets in. So if the vial is properly filled, the stopper will always have a pierced marking. According to Dennis Ernst, director of the Center for Phlebotomy Education in Corydon, Indiana. So if you're a phlebotomist or nurse, you probably know all about the purple stopped vacutainers on blood vials. And I'll... I'll link up pictures, but they do have a puncture wound. Not wound. They're a vial. (laughs) They have a puncture hole. They have a puncture in the top. They have a puncture. A little bitty puncture. So, but still, the seal was broken. So why is this? This was weird to me, too. 
Well, it turns out the seal was actually broken in a meeting with Stephen Avery's own lawyers from his wrongful conviction suit. So that's why the seal was broken. As investigators are working on this case, Stephen's nephew, Brendan Dassey, comes into the picture. In March of 2006, he was charged as an accessory after he confessed to having helped his uncle Stephen kill Teresa and dispose of the body. He did not have good attorneys, I'm just going to say. His lawyer thought there was enough evidence against him that he should just go ahead and confess in hopes he would get a lighter sentence. They're just like all about damage control. No, I can't help you. Confess. If I didn't do something, it would be so hard to confess, but I can see in this case. Yeah. Anyway. Don't confess if you didn't do anything ever. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Thunder. So his defense attorney has an investigator interview Brendan, and during this interview, he tells a story about how his uncle Stephen had come over and that Stephen had a woman shackled up in the back on a bed in Stephen's bedroom. So, and that he got Brendan to sexually assault her. Brendan said that Stephen... Yeah, Brendan said that Stephen tried to get him to stab her, but he wouldn't. Then Stephen did. Then he said that Stephen choked her to death, and after she was dead, shoots her with his rifle when she's already dead. He said that Stephen shot her multiple times, I believe ten times. When the investigator asks him where, where was she shot, Brendan points to himself and shows them three times in the head. And then seven times below. So then he said they put her body in the back of her RAV4 because they had plans to dispose of her in a nearby rock quarry and submerge everything. Mm-mm. Brendan said that it was all dried up, you know, the water. So they had to figure something else out. So instead, they had a bonfire and used an accelerant to burn Teresa's body in the burn pit. So this is a big bonfire on Stephen Avery's property. He does admit that he has a big fire, and he does say no one else started a fire. Just going to say that real fast. Online, you can watch the entire four-hour-long interview with Brendan Dassey. The documentary does show portions of the interrogation, and this looks super questionable, super bad. We're not yelling at him in his face or anything. But out of context, it definitely looks like they're feeding him the lines. I do want to point out, though, that what the documentary shows is not the first confession. Because when I was watching, I took it as this is him for the first time in there telling them what happened. But he had already given them that entire confession first. So what is shown on the documentary is the second time they're running through so that it can be recorded for them. So, basically, at this point, the investigators have already heard the story once. So, they're just kind of like, tell it to us again. Regardless of this, he was 16 years old. His mother did give police consent, but I do not like it. I mean, there's something icky, for lack of a better word, about a group of police, invest- or you know, chatting to a teenager in a room without... Their mother, Mm -mm. I don't like that at all. I don't know what the laws are on that, but if I had a 16-year-old son, I'm not blaming her for this. She doesn't know what's going on either, but you'd have to pry me out of that room. He also has a lower-than-normal IQ, 
And all of that combined together just doesn't seem fair. So after this, his mom has a phone call with him. Do you remember that phone call? Yes. Yes. Furious at her brother, Stephen Avery. It's a call from prison, so of course it's recorded. Well, his mother asks him if he did it, and he answers some of it. Mm -mm. Then his mom starts raging immediately about her brother, Stephen. So what the documentary leaves out is the second half of that phone conversation where Brendan tells his mother that Stephen Avery sexually molested him multiple times over the years along with another female family member, he tells his mom that he's afraid of Stephen, and that's what he went along with what Stephen told him to do. That makes sense, though. Yeah. I don't know really why they left that out. If they're going to put the first part in the documentary, why not leave the whole thing? But anyway, I'm like, no, that does make sense. You're a 16-year-old. Your IQ, even if your IQ is below average, you're young. Someone's threatening you or you're afraid of someone. I can see that. But they then move the RAV4 to the junkyard portion of the property. And Brendan says that Stephen pulled out the battery, opened the hood, pulled out the battery to make it look like a broken down car. And then they put the boards and stuff on everything. So, the, I mean, he's, if that's really what happened, that's kind of smart. Yeah. To make it look like it didn't work to begin with. So the investigators found DNA on the hood latch where Stephen supposedly opened it and then pulled out. The battery. So that evening, they cleaned the garage and then had a bonfire. When Brendan got home that night, his mother was irritated with him because he had bleach splatters all over his jeans and they were ruined. But then Brendan recants his confession. He says he was coerced by police and then also refused to testify to his involvement at Stephen's trial. So he recants and claims that he wasn't near the house because he was busy in Stephen's garage the entire time cleaning. So this leads them to the garage where they find the bullet that has Teresa's DNA on it. So people, some people suggest that maybe this was planted as well. But I will say this was in March of the next year. Why wouldn't they have planned it sooner? Just pointing that out. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But anyway, her DNA is on this bullet, and it came from the very same gun, the rifle that was hung above Stephen's bed. So it had been shot from that gun. Because they had already gathered all of his guns from the house, they had collected that rifle in November of 2005. So the police have had that gun since November of 2005. He also tells the police that he didn't hang out with his uncle Stephen that night. He just briefly went over there to help Stephen push a car into the garage, then went home to eat supper and didn't even see him again that night until the next morning. But even his mother said he was out with Stephen until late that night. She called him annoyed, telling him he needed to get home. It was late. And then he came home, and that's when she saw the bleach on his pants. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a quick visit. And it's kind of odd that if he was just cleaning the garage and then they had a bonfire, why lie about it? I don't know. But So Stephen was never known to be a good housekeeper, and his home was spotless. I'm not saying that men don't deep clean their homes with bleach. 
They don't. <laughs> they don't even put their toilet seats down. <laughs> I'm just saying. Or get the toothpaste out of the sink. Boys are <laughs> gross. Just most of those that knew Steven said him bleaching a garage clean was very atypical. Well, I don't know. My dad had a garage growing up, and he was not bleaching shit. No. It smelled like gas and oil. And, and from what I know, and... it was never said what he was supposedly bleaching or anything. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't use bleach. Maybe he did use bleach. I don't know. I don't know what he was cleaning. If it wasn't a crime scene, I don't know. So, Brendan Dassey was convicted of murder, rape, mutilation, in a separate trial, and he will be able to ask for parole in 2048. So, Stephen Avery is serving a life sentence for first-degree intentional homicide. In August of 2011, a state appeals court denied Stephen Avery's petition for a new trial. And in 2013, the Wisconsin Supreme Court denied a motion to review the ruling. In January of 2016, Chicago attorney Kathleen Zellner, in collaboration with the Midwest Innocence Project, filed a new appeal citing violations of Stephen Avery's due process rights and accusing officials of gathering evidence from properties beyond the scope of their search warrant. So Brendan Dassey had his conviction tossed in 2016 before it was later reinstated on appeal. So in 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear his case. So they're both in prison today. Do have a couple of updates since that. So on Friday, April 23rd of 2021, so a couple months ago, Stephen Avery's lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, accused the state of Wisconsin of withholding crucial evidence in a letter after new witnesses came forward. So this followed a new court filing on April 13th that states a delivery driver came forward and said he saw Bobby Dassey, which is Brendan's brother, with an unidentified bearded man in his 50s to 60s pushing a Toyota RAV4 into the property in the early hours of November 5th. So this, if it's true, would place Bobby Dassey at the scene of the crime. We'll see if something comes of this. I'll be following along for updates as well. I have so many sources that I use for this, and I know I missed a lot of things. There's just so many articles out there, so much information. It's way, there's way too much there's information. There's a lot. Like, this is its own a million episode podcast. So, and the, and the, it's a lot. The documentary is really good. Yeah. But it will have you up in your feels about, yeah. If he really did it, if he was framed. Right. But yeah. It's hard to be neutral. Yeah. Exactly. When you watch the documentary. Because you instantly make a decision on this is ridiculous or that's ridiculous. So yeah, I after I watched it, I had my own feelings. I did some research and I changed my feelings about a lot of things. But I'm just going to end the case with this so Teresa Hallback was someone's child, sister, oh, yes, friend. Whether it was at the hands of Stephen Avery or someone else, she lost her life 100%. that day and needs to be remembered. And some people were, um, I don't know who exactly it was, I don't want to misquote, but they were accusing her family of 
tampering with evidence and stuff. And it's just like at the end of the day, I didn't. I don't want people going after her family. They lost her. Like you know, that's t- it's that's terrible, terrible the way that she died. Yeah, it's terrible. So after the documentary aired, Teresa's aunt Kay told People Magazine, "I was very upset, but I know the right people know the truth. Everyone has their own side of a story. That is the Avery's family's side of the story. I wouldn't expect it to be different." So just remember, regardless, if you have strong opinions one way or the other, this is just, this is still a family that's grieving. Like I said, I have a million sources. I'll link those all up in our show notes. This case was a lot. Even after you start looking up articles, my biggest recommendation, though, if people want to know more is read the court transcripts. It's a lot. There's a lot of it. And like I said, Brendan Dassey's confession to police is four hours long, which is really long. That's a long time. But I just, I I watched what was in the documentary and it's snippets that makes it look a little different. It's just a little slanted. That's not wrong. Just Documentaries saying. are what they are, if, of course, you know. I don't want anyone innocent to be in prison either. I really don't. It's just, there's a lot of... Hurt parties involved, I guess. <sighs> it made heavy. me really nervous walking around this. Your case is really heavy. I know. And I don't have any... I've, I've had no puns or funniness this time around. I know. I don't either. I don't have... There's not... You know, like there's a Florida man. There's not a Wisconsin man. No. Because, no. You're just eating cheese and cheering on the Packers. And I have family from Wisconsin. And... Are you Welsh? They're German. In Wisconsin? From Wisconsin. Yeah, German immigrants to What's their last name? Wisconsin. I don't know if I'm on. I probably shouldn't say. Just their last name? You don't know their first name. And Wisconsin is full of weird-ass names. So it's not (laughs) like... It's not that weird. It's Schmidt. Are you shitting me? No, You're like, I don't know if I want to say their last name. Like, it was going to be like Dornhofer or something. No, I meant... I didn't know if I wanted to, you know... I don't know. People want me to talk about their names or not. Well, they don't know their first names, and there's a bazillion Schmitz. They're all in, they're a bunch of them in Wisconsin. So, oh, oh I have something fun to add from Wisconsin. Trader Joe's has these Danish Kringles. I, I love a Danish. So, okay, for those of you who don't know what these are, they're from Racine, Wisconsin, and they're a big old circle Danish. And they make have seasonal ones. I've had the pecan. I've had the raspberry cheesecake. All kinds. All of those sound amazing. So this I'm so hungry. Wisconsin cousin of mine. Um, I think I went to... Schmidt? Yes. We'll just call him Schmitty for now. Schmitty? I don't think he'll listen. If he does, he'll he'll text me. I'm sure. But anyway, he... I brought... I didn't have time to make anything for a holiday, so I took back home one of these big crinkles so he took a picture of it and texted me omg where did you get this because they you know they don't have a trader joe's where i'm from or anything he's like this is a big bakery in wisconsin and racine wisconsin i'm like i don't know it's just a good and it was a trader joe's yeah it was but they import them from racine i don't know if i'm saying that right racine racine wisconsin yeah they're really good go get one kind of want to dance. They're really big, though. That's the only problem is they're so huge that it's you have to take it to a function because I'm not eating a whole big Kringle. I'll eat the whole damn I'll thing. eat the whole Kringle? I will eat a whole Kringle. <sighs> Leave what? us a review if you've ever why eaten a Kringle. You, why didn't you share it with me? I know. You're oh, so stingy. Oh, that reminds me. We have 
So we did our um, buy me a cocktail. Yes. And Kathy bought us a cocktail. Kathy from California. Thanks for thanks the, for thanks the for the vodka. Yeah, so I guess we'll say what we drank during the episode other than we both had Diet Cokes. But you had a... Ice pick, which is a Tito's. Leave us a review if you know what this is. A, tea, a Tito's and unsweet tea. Anywhere we go, this is her go-to. and Which is funny because, like, last night I went to dinner with a friend and I ordered a ice pick carcass out. And so bartenders I'm know sorry. what that means. Uh, or people who... Is that a lemon? Drink a lot. <laughs> no. So carcass out means you want the lemon squeezed in, but then out. Like you don't want to, you don't want it on your glass. You don't want it inside. Carcass out. And she looked at me like I was effing crazy. Carcass out? Carcass out. You say carcass in. I mean, I think you just ask for a lemon. I've never heard that in my life. Carcass out. Not that I'm a bartender or anything, but I've never heard that term. Yeah. So I like lemon squeezed in it, but then throw it away. Don't squeeze it and drop it in my glass. I'm going to send it back. Is no. it because of germs? No, I just don't want shit floating around my drink <laughs> unless it's ice. That's hilarious. Some people don't like lemons from bars, you know, because people touch it. Well, then that's you just like squeeze the juice. I mean, that's a good point, too. Then you squeeze it in and you throw it out. So it's just the carcass. See, I like juice and the carcass. Of course you do. Give me the juice and the carcass. She wants the whole, just touch it, rub it in your hands, roll it around in a ball, and then put it in her glass. So, yeah, I had a Tito's Unsweet today, so thank you. And I had Arbor Mist. (laughs) (laughs) Listen. (laughs) What kind of Arbor Mist? Oh, I think it was strawberry. It was strawberry for sure, but I think it might have been strawberry mango, but I put a little orange juice in it. Was so, it was it like a wine? Was it a sangria? Was it a prosecco? What was it? It was like a. She doesn't know. But thank you, Kathy, for the cocktail. Thank you, Kathy, for my vodka. Lacey drank leftover wine. She's like, stop, stop, please. Where are we next week? We don't know. We don't know. Where should we go? We're gonna leave this a mystery. We're gonna leave a cliffhanger. We're gonna surprise. We're you. gonna surprise you. Maybe Jax will be performing stand up. Who's Jax? My cat. Oh. I was like, who the hell's Jax? And is he single? Is he single? His name's kind of hot. Single, You're like, he's got gray hair. And I'm like, even better. <laughs> he's a silver fox. I am on board this he's train. A silver fox. Follow us on Instagram at United States of Murder, on Twitter and Facebook, and all the things. All the things at US of M Podcast. Buy our merch. Bias Cocktail, we'll give you a shout out. You can find the link for that in our Instagram bio or on our Facebook. Leave us a review and we'll send you a sticky. Yeah. And oh, by the way, so Katie, I'm going to send you some stickers. I just have to find where I packed my thank you cards. Oh my gosh. And get those in the mail. I'm going to need you to get it together in this big old haunted house. So Lacey just moved into a new house and I had to go investigate the attic because I love all things creepy. Yes, it's a creepy attic. And I found, she already posted, put the picture on. Yeah, I put it on our Instagram story, but you were peeking in an opening in the floorboard of, of the attic. Of course I was. I'm like, what, what treasures are down here? And yeah, you pulled out a ripped out page. I don't know what even, what it was in. Maybe a kid's book? Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, it was a creepy, creepy art rendering of Hansel and Gretel. I tried to Google that image and I couldn't find it, but I want to frame it and put it you up You definitely need to frame it and put it up here. Yeah, we should put it up here. Well... 
I had to turn the air conditioner off because it's too loud. So we're going to... We're, we're done. We're going to bebop out, and you can speculate what's going to happen next week. Because we don't know. We don't know. Anyway. Miss Kathy bought me a drink. Kathy, you bought her a <laughs> and Lacey's, strong And Lacey's drink. shutting us down before I say something to embarrass us, which is possible. You could never embarrass me. That's the trick. Bye. Bye.